Hi, I'm Debbie Mann. This is Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. And my guest today is Leslie Kimball. And Leslie is from Kingston. And we've known each other for 10 or 12 years. Yeah. And I asked Leslie to join me because I really feel she has an interesting story or her husband has an interesting story. You know, you'll talk about this, I guess, but he's a bit shy or not into the whole (laughs) PR thing and talking, right? But but Leslie is good at this and, and has been doing a lot of talking on behalf of the disease her husband has. So I asked her if she would join me because it's not just about cancer. This podcast isn't just about breast cancer. It's going to be about people overcoming different challenges in life. And Rick had one really big one. So why don't you share with us a little bit about you and Rick, how long you've been together, all that. So we have been married for 32 years. We have uh, four girls. And shortly after we got married, very shortly after we got married, Rick, Rick was feeling sort of short of breath and just, you know, thought, I mean, he was a smoker, but he wasn't a big, and uh, he he was a decorator, his own painting and wallpapering and all of that. So he was thinking that his shortness of breath was perhaps, you know, from all the paint fumes that he'd been breathing in. Anyway, he quit smoking and, you know, six months later, he still wasn't feeling much better and... So we went to the doctor and they ran some tests and our family doctor came, I'm going to send you to a respirologist. And we said, fine. And he said, uh, he didn't, he didn't really say a lot about it, but he said, I think you have uh, something called alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, which is a, is a um, hereditary, very similar. It affects a different part of the lobe, but it, it has basically the same effects. If, same, sorry, I missed that. The same effects as? As emphysema. Oh, okay. The, the main cause of emphysema is uh, is smoking. And you must get one gene from each parent. AAT or A1AT is also a liver disease. Um, and it's one of the leading causes of liver disease in children. But it also affects adults in the liver. So... There's a lot of research being done, but nobody really knows why patient A developed lung, lung disease at the age of between 30 and 40. And it's typically how long it takes to damage your lungs. But patient B was born with it in the liver. Nobody really knows why you get one or the other. And in the 32 years that Rick and I have been dealing with this, uh, I have met a handful of people who have both lung and liver yeah so it's 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 a kind of an intricate disease because it 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 has so many different facets to it so fast forward when the family doctor thought he saw what he was seeing in the x-ray and sent us to respirology that was confirmed we were so fortunate because the type of disease that alpha one is it's it's considered a rare disease and it mimics lung diseases, COPD, asthma, bronchitis, emphysema, and most doctors don't recognize it when they see it. And so they say that on average, it takes seven years and five doctors to properly diagnose often one. And Rick was diagnosed because he was, he, he's English and he lived in the UK before yeah. he came to Canada. 
Yeah. And he was involved in a research study on coal miners who apparently have a higher uh, incidence of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Is that because of them working in the coal mine? Perhaps. I don't know why. I mean, it's genetic, but perhaps the, uh, certainly the coal mine, the working in the coal mine was exacerbated at greater speed, perhaps. The fact that he, we saw one doctor and, and got a proper diagnosis was so fortuitous for us because Rick could have been just getting sicker and sicker and nobody have any answers for him except, you know, use this puffer. And so at least we knew what we were dealing with. And in my typical fashion, when I hear things that I don't know anything about, I dive in and research. So I, I connected with a group in the States because there was an Alpha One association in the States. They connected me up with a lady, Ottawa, who sat on their board of directors. She had Alpha-1 and was on oxygen 24-7. And she and I, she taught me about Alpha-1 with the American organization. And eventually, Sue and I spearheaded Alpha-1 Canada. So in 2001, we had our first Canadian patient meeting. We had 80 patients from across Canada. And in 2003, we became a nonprofit organization and worked to identify patients across the country and to support them with materials and trying medical treatment and worked with doctors to educate them about alpha one and you know these are the symptoms you might see and this is when you should test and it's a simple blood test for alpha one so you know if doctors knew to just take this blood test because it's such a rare disease that, you know, they see all of the symptoms and they say, oh, you have emphysema or you have asthma. It's just very difficult to separate it from so many other lung diseases. Anyway, that's what the basis of Alpha One Canada was. Um, and as a support group for patients and an education group for healthcare workers and patients. And how many, do you know how many Alpha One patients there are in Canada? In Canada? We think there are about five, there should be about 5,000 in Canada. Oh. Statistically, there should be. Yeah. Um, but they're not, there are not that many identified. You know, that's sort of been the goal, to identify these patients and to, to work with them to, to get them treatment. Now, when Rick was first diagnosed, there was no treatment in Canada, but there was in the States. And 18 years after he was diagnosed, he was finally able to, to get access to the, the treatment, which is called prolastin. It's the protein, the alpha-1 protein, that is missing from his system. And what happens with alpha-1 is there is a substance called trypsin in your system, in your blood, that goes up to the lung and protects the lung. There's also a substance called antitrypsin. And that goes to the lung to, to sort of go on to eat all the good bacteria. The antitrypsin is developed in your liver. And what happens is it can't get through the wall for some reason. It's big science behind that. But what happens is the alpha-1, or the antitrypsin, collects in the liver, doesn't get up to the lung, and it causes cirrhosis of the liver. So your lungs deteriorate over a period of time. Some do it sooner, some do it much later. 
a lot of it depends on what other factors are involved. For instance, with Rick being a painter, he might, had he not been a painter and he'd been a, a school teacher or something, he might have not shown symptoms as early as he did. He was 39 when he was diagnosed. But, you know, so there are other sort of environmental factors that come into play. So Rick had shortness of breath, you know, I think of asthma or bronchitis. Right. But what happens? It, your lungs deteriorate? Is that what happens? And Yes, basically your lungs start to deteriorate over a period of time. And what happens to them actually is basically your lungs lose their elasticity and they inflate and they become very barrel chested, for instance. So as opposed to someone who might have pulmonary fibrosis where the lung shrinks when it gets damaged, the lung shrinks up. So what was happening was Rick's chest was filling up. His lungs were just expanding and expanding. So you can breathe in, but you've lost the elasticity in the lungs, so you can't breathe out. So the air just continues to expand the lungs. So fast forward to December of, well, actually to, to 2017, we'll say. Before that, was he on oxygen? And how long yeah. was he on oxygen for? He was on oxygen, but only, he was not on it full time. He wasn't on it 24 hours a day. Okay. He needed it for any exertion. He did respiratory therapy uh, three times a week. And he always used oxygen for that. But if he had, if he was doing anything that, you know, for exercising or if he was, he also needed it to sleep, but he, but he didn't use it 24 seven. And what did happen to him, however, is that he got frequent chest infections. So he was always on prednisone and antibiotics. And, you know, he would have from six to 10 chest infections a year, or he would, he only developed pneumonia twice, which was fortunate because typically they you know that's a, that's something that will happen to people they'll develop pneumonia quite quickly but he around 2016 2017 there was treatment which was this iv protein putting the alpha 1 into your system which he had been on for about oh maybe 18 years he was on it um and but they but it's not a cure. All that did was slow down the progression of the disease. He had always been told from day one that the only cure for alpha one is a lung transplant, which we've since discovered isn't a cure. The only actual cure for alpha one is a liver transplant. Oh, which is you know your <laughs> discussion. But so regardless, in 2017 they wanted to um, assess him at the point where it was time for a lung transplant. And you know, for years and years and years, we always knew that it was possibly in the cards, but it was always, the doctor would always say, oh, but you're long. And then all of a sudden, here we were at, well, perhaps it's time to start thinking about getting you assessed. So they started to assess him and they, they came across a couple of other minor issues that needed to be repaired before he could go further in the assessment. And one of them was they discovered when they were doing the angiogram that he had a blockage in his heart and his valve. So he had to have a stent put in. In October of 2017, they said, we'd like you to come to Toronto because Toronto is, is where he would have the surgery. They said, you'll come for the assessment, which had been earlier in the year, was a full week of appointments. So you, you meet with you know, the surgeon, you meet with the physio people, 
we meet with every kind of doctor you can imagine. <laughs> he had to do the respiratory rehab program for uh, three times a week for that month. And then we could go back, sort of the day you arrive is the day they list you. And then you go through their month-long physio program. And then you can go back and do that program and then just come back once a week to Toronto for to make sure that you know they can monitor you and that you're not running into any issues and they said you know your your lungs are small you may have to wait a little bit longer to to get lungs that are the right lungs for you because of your size and so they listed him and we stayed for our month and we had two weeks where we went back and forth from Kingston to Toronto. And on the third week, when we went for the doctor's appointment, Rick had actually started to develop an infection. They gave him some antibiotics and sent us home. And we were still in Toronto. And he had a physio appointment the next morning. At seven o'clock, the phone rang and we have a set of lungs for you. And it, it just blew me away. It was, we were not expecting it at all. It was literally five weeks from the time he was listed till the time that first call came. And the one thing that we had been told is that many, many people, when they receive their calls, get what they call false calls. So they will call you when a set of lungs becomes available, but there's still another team that's gone off to collect the lungs. So to pick them up wherever they might be and to bring them back to the hospital. So very often, people will they'll get an available set of lungs and they'll bring them back and for whatever reason, they're not viable. They're not the best match. They're a little too big. They're a little, I mean, they do a lot of this prepper to actually have them and can assess them fully, which, which sucks, quite frankly, for, for someone who's been waiting for lungs and gets that call and gets as far as, you know, getting into surgery. So the whole time that, that we were waiting after our call, we honestly thought, okay, this is our dry run. Surprisingly calm. <laughs> it, was, it was almost surreal. Because, um, you know, the whole day I'm thinking, gee, my husband just got a call that he's going in for a lung transplant, and I'm so calm. I'm, I'm, I, for some reason, I feel so laid back about it. And I have to tell you that I wasn't concerned about the outcome of the surgery. I had no doubt that, you know, he was in good hands. And by that point, quite frankly, his quality of life was not great because he couldn't breathe, right? By, by that, by the point, by the time he got the call, you know, there was a lot that he couldn't do. So it was really the only answer to improve his quality of life. It was so surreal that, that we were both kind of still laid back and and when we got the call, she said, well, you know, we'll check in with you in a few hours. So go ahead and, and you know, get ready. How close are you to the hospital? I said, well, we happen to be in Toronto. We don't have to drive to Houston. She said, okay, well, have your lunch and I'll call you after lunch. So, and it really is that casual. Like it's, it's bizarre actually. But so we, so we sort of hung around the house and we got ready. We packed, we always have had a bag, had had a bag packed and ready to go. At, in Kingston, and so if we ever came to Toronto after, you know, on our trips back and forth, we always brought that bag with us just to be sure we had something. 
And then she called back again and said, it looks like the lungs, you know, are, are on their way. And so we'll, we'll maybe call you back around four o'clock just to let you know, you know, what the situation is. And at four o'clock, she called back and said, um, how far are you from the hospital? And, you know, are you going to hit rush hour traffic? Perhaps you could leave about five o'clock to come in um, to check in at emergency. So we did that. We got in the car and and uh, drove to the hospital. And when we got there, the computers were out. <laughs> oh my gosh! So they couldn't admit us. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was just it was just kind of a really strange day. Anyway, they they. Um, brought us into admitting and then they sent us up to the floor and they they took us to the floor and and uh they had us in a room that um had been a storage closet (laughs) 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 there's a bunch of stuff stored in the one end but they had a they had a bed i think there were short short rooms at the time um and they said to rick we'll just you know sit here and every few hours you know take his temperature and take some other stats and um, he was still dressed, fully dressed, and I think they, they just kept coming back saying, well, you know, we, we think it's it might be 10 o'clock, and then they came back and said, well, it looks like it might be 12 o'clock now, and they came back and said, it looks like they'll be coming to pick you up around um, 2 o'clock, 2 a.m. She had said it looks like they're they're good to go, um, but they, they just want to do a few more things, and so yeah, at 2.30, they came and picked him up, and we got to go down in the elevator with him, and at the bottom of the elevator, they said, okay, this is where we leave you, and we said our goodbyes, <laughs> and then we went, and they showed us the uh, waiting room was, and we went and waited, and then we had a surgery. Part of the thing is that, that we had basically been told that we lived in Kingston, which was about as far as we could live, you know, they expect you, they like you to be sort of two, two and a half hours away from the hospital. But we had always envisioned being at home doing something. I'd be at work or something and the phone call would come and it would be, go, oh, we gotta get there. <laughs> you know, we gotta drive to Toronto. And I had I had talked to family members and I said, okay, you know, I'm gonna call you first if you're able to drive us to Toronto because I would have, I assumed that I would have been a basket of nerves and I'm I was pretty sure Rick wouldn't be able to go so I sort of had family members lined up who got the first call who got the second call who got the third call that sort of thing and uh none of none of that stuff happened in in case in point um a friend of uh, a friend of ours Rick was he was in respiratory rehab with Rick and he also lives in Kingston he got six calls and he got his lungs on the sixth time and I think four of the times they were in Kingston. Now, some of those times, they didn't even have to leave Kingston. They got the call back before they'd even left to say, these lungs aren't going to be viable for you. But one time he was prepped and ready for surgery. And I have to say that this whole process from the day he was listed to the day he got the call, which was a very short period of time. And five weeks is not a typical wait. They told us we might have to wait six to eight months. And we met people who waited two years. 
it, he just happened to be, I think, in the right place at the right time when the right lungs came along. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that that five weeks of this entire process, from the day he was diagnosed 32 years ago, was the most stressful time for me. The day they take your phone number, and every time that ID came up, <laughs> do you know how many people have no caller ID on their phones? No, no. no. Well, not my circle anyway. Is that just a preference, or they, they just don't want it, or they can't have it because of their occupation? Um, their occupation. A lot of people don't like to have their number visible to their client. Correct, yeah. With the no caller ID. I have to say there were a lot of stressful moments every time that phone rang and, and uh, no caller ID popped up. So that was, for me, that was the most stressful. And there's a saying, um, Rick got the lungs. I mean, this is a general saying, but Rick got the lungs, but we all got the transplant. We all, we all lived through that transplant experience. All very different experiences, depending on whether you were the wife or the child or the Right. You know, or the grandchild or whatever but we all experienced that with him and um because it's it's not easy for the caregiver either so he he got his lungs the surgery was with 10 hours wow 10 hours. and mind you this was a double lung transplant this was not a single lung which is the only one kind of transplant he could have he came out of surgery. The surgeon came in to talk to us, and he said, I have to tell you that he's probably going to be very sleepy for two or three days. He may not wake up for a, for a day or two. Um, he's intubated, so he's not going to be able to talk to you. But he he went through the surgery fine, and we expect you know, we expect him to to be up and about shortly, in a, in a while. So they brought him to ICU at one o'clock and he was awake shortly after that at three o'clock. Wow. And they they extubated him at six o'clock that night because he was fully awake and it was really bothering him. The, the um, tubes were really bothering him. So they took him out at six o'clock at night. He did his first walk at 10 a.m. the next now, I have to ask, I mean, is that unusual? Maybe not for Rick, but... <laughs> I don't think it's typical. Uh, I mean, we've met all kinds of transplant patients, and they they sort of range between not walking for three or four days, sleeping for the first two days. He also had very little pain. Now, when you have a lung transplant, when you have a heart transplant, they, they cut you down the center, right? Move a lung transplant and cut you from armpit to armpit under the breastbone. They open you up like a clam. Oh God! And they call it they call that the clamshell. And Rick had little to no pain, terribly high pain threshold. But he spent two weeks in hospital. He was 14 days. And uh, when they were signing him out, the nurse said to him, "I have to tell you, Rick, that." I've never sent a patient home without payment. So he, we, we had to, of course, move to Toronto. We moved into an apartment that was close by the hospital. And my girls were with me. And we 
decorated the Christmas tree. And uh, because by then it was December 22nd. And when, when we brought Rick home, we walked into this apartment that was fully furnished with a Christmas tree in the corner. And that's where we started our three months recovery. Frequent doctor's appointments, of course. We went to the doctor every week. And they monitor you very closely for the first for the first three months. And you start physio right away. And you're going to physio three times a week. And they, you know, give you a set of exercises that you have to do. And you're generally there for about two hours every second day. And that's what you do. You pretty well live at the hospital for that three months. And uh, and then we were able to come home to Kingston. When he came out of hospital in December, before we had left Toronto, we we went to visit our daughter in Pickton, and there's a big, huge hill in Pickton for a walk. And it was snowing; it was extremely cold, which is also a, something that he could never go out in that kind of weather because he just couldn't catch his breath. But we went out, and so he he was about two and a half months post transplant, and we went off for this walk and. He, he, he looked up the hill and he said, okay, let's go. And up he went with Erin, arm in arm. And when she got to the top of the hill, she started to cry. And she said, mom, this is the first walk I've ever gone on with my dad. She's 27 years old. So those are the kinds of firsts that, that are really exciting to see. Yes, they walked from point A to point B. But, but never like a stroll. Never, never gone out for a walk for the sake of going out for a walk. We've had a lot of those kinds of moments. And how are you today? I'm fine. Um, you know, it, <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just so thrilled to see together we can do so many things that we didn't do for a long time. This particular past three months has been because your anti-rejection drugs basically knock out your immune system and they have to do that to to stop rejection so they just sort of keep all the antibodies at bay but that also means that in during a time like this when covid is is so rampant we had to be extremely careful so for the last three months rick has hardly left the house we certainly go for walks every day and sometimes when i had to do errands or had to go out somewhere he would drive me just to get out of the house he can work in the yard and that's great and just this week he did go to home depot (laughs) (laughs) but of course he you know we go into stores we wear a mask we wash our hands all in all we're doing very well there's always things that you need to keep your eyes although he's not been sick lung wise he um he's developed a back problem and the anti-rejection drugs tend to to do a little bit of a number on you um they play havoc with your kidneys so he's having a few kidney issues and in essence you know when you have a transplant because of the drugs which are keeping you alive, you're trained because they do tend to to cause other things to happen. 
but there's a big difference when you can actually breathe. If you're dealing now with some minor kidney issues, at least you can breathe through it. It's a, it's a trade-off for sure, but it's one I, I'm glad we did because he now has so much better quality of life. And, you know, he gets to see his grandkids and he gets to, and we're just grateful to his donor and his donor's family, because there's something I want to tell you about organ donation. You know, they tell you to sign your card, go to register. And if, if anybody hasn't done that and, and has, you know, would like to, to learn about organ donation and what's involved or wants to make sure that their organs are donated when they go, you need to do that because it's not just signing the registry on your driver's license or registry online. You need to talk to your family about it because ultimately your family can make that final decision. Your family could, if they're not aware that you, you know, that this is something you want to do, they can, they can say, no, we don't, we're not comfortable with that. We don't want to donate organs. So not only are we grateful for the donor, but we're grateful for their family for having the, the courage and the strength. This is what we need to do. Thanks for mentioning that, Leslie. I think it's really important that, that we know that. You know, it's one thing when you read about it, hear about it, a movie's done about it. It's another thing when your friend calls you and says, hey, we got lungs. Well, I must say that we, we've also been so fortunate that our friends have supported us in, in the manner that they have. I mean, you know, there's always been someone there with a call or a, and um, it's, it's an upheaval for sure. You, you know, your whole life sort of gets. It, it was stressful to think that I might have to go and live in Toronto. I was more worried about living in Toronto, to be honest. <laughs> and then, you know, you have all those other things to consider. We have a mortgage on our home in Kingston still. And yet we had to go and rent an apartment in Toronto, which, you know, the rent alone was $3,000 a month. So all of, on top of this, you know, the medical side of it, you have all of the other doing this. Um, thankfully, we have a wonderful organ donation um, transplant association here. Um, a group of people who have had various transplants, not just lungs. And it's a it's a really good group, and it's a very supportive group. And we, you know, they have socials, and you just get to know them, and 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 they support you, and they they. Um, you know, I, I went, we met up with a couple of them prior to Rick even being listed, and they were telling us about their experience and what we could expect and who we could talk to about getting an apartment and all of those kinds of things. And so that was huge to help us prepare. You know, you're never on your own. You don't go through this alone. It really takes a village to, you know, to support a transplant recipient. And their families, because their families need the support. So, so we're so grateful that for the people that we met along the way, and for the transplant association, and people that we met in Toronto, and 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 we reach out to people. You know, we have a Facebook group for um, transplant 
uh, lung transplant recipients, you know, you you don't you don't feel badly reaching out to someone you don't know on Facebook when they say, you know, I'm I've been listed and I'm waiting or I'm, hey, we're in Kingston too, you know, feel free to call or you know if you need to chat. It's made friends for life, you know, these people that we only just met in the last 18 months, and I think they're um, they're people that you'll you'll be friends with for life because you have this whole experience that as much as people are supportive and I am so grateful for so many people and you know I have a large family I'm the youngest of six and my siblings have been absolutely phenomenal as have Rick's Rick's got a much smaller family than mine but you know you just there's nothing there's nothing like family and there's nothing like friends it's just yeah. been a, a, a really, really incredible experience. And uh, I didn't think I ever wanted to go through it. But I'm glad I have for many reasons, for many, many reasons. I have so much to be thankful. What a lovely way to end this podcast. Thanks, Leslie, for joining me on Keep Your Pepper Up podcast. And if you'd like to find out more about what's going on on this podcast, please click subscribe. Thanks, Les. Thanks, Deb. Bye-bye.